I have three pairs of like pants that I wear. Like I own maybe five pairs, but yeah, three that are just my everyday. Um, black jeans, blue jeans, and then like camel colored pants. And uh, all three of them have huge rips right there. Right. In exactly the same spot. You could have worn them. I was going to wear it. Well, because I had to do a whole other rest of the day today. So oh, otherwise, you know, I was going to wear them and then I was going to feel this sense of solidarity. <laughs> Hello my friends and welcome to episode 16 of Coming Up Next. That was Sirens, the title track off Ben Abraham's EP of the same name. Now before I go into my interview with Ben, I wanted to tell you all about something really special that we're doing. My production company, Marx Brothers Production, has been independently creating original content such as this podcast for several years now. And now as you may have seen, we've launched a fundraising campaign aimed at getting as many people as possible to donate just a little bit each month. My brother, or as you may know him, pantsless producer Nick and I want to be bringing you the best possible show for years, and the best way to do that is to ensure that we have monthly contributors that we can count on. With your help, we'll be able to set up the infrastructure to take chances and strive for greatness. Coming up next is always going to be a free podcast for everyone, so if you find that you're getting great value in your week from the interviews we're doing, and you want to be a part of the Coming Up Next work, pledge to throw in a couple of dollars a month. It'll be one of those things that gives you warm fuzzies on the insides and hits you right in your feeling buttons. There are some unique opportunities for those who do pledge, only available here, with plenty more coming in the future. Your support for as little as $1 a month will ensure that our show goes on for as long as I can ramble. You may even help Nick find some pants. And you'll get to feel great about supporting something that you love. So head over to patreon.com slash marksbros. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash m-a-r-k-s. 
B-R-O-S. Join the coming up next work and have my eternal gratitude. So here's my interview with Ben. It's another step in the evolution of the show, our first musician. And stick around after the ramble, friends, to hear some more of Ben's music as he christens the chat cave with a beautiful acoustic number. It's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Yes. Uh, oh, that was a really interesting uh, thing I heard about that, possibly on a Pete Holmes podcast. Oh, really? It was on a podcast I was listening to. Have we to. started? Like, is this on... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not done what I was expecting. Like... <laughs> we have started. Yeah. We've actually been recording for 15 minutes already. <laughs> since you started playing piano before. No, really? No. Oh, don't, not really. Don't freak me out. Um, what was it? It was something like... Men are more willing to... Um, ask for forgiveness. Mm. What did you say? It's it's better to uh, ask it's better for forgiveness. To, than... It's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Yeah, I feel like it's an old saying that I heard somewhere. I don't remember where I'm going with this. I was going somewhere. It's interesting with it. though. I heard it. It, was, it, it sounded it's... good. It felt profound. It did feel profound. Yeah. I probably just cut all this out and leave it at what you said. <laughs> no, I, I, I like the preamble after or the the postamble. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I'm joined today. Ben, do you, do you, do you just ben know Abraham. Ben Abraham now? Yeah, why not? Formerly? <laughs> ben Manasama. Ben Manasama. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Um, so I'm joined by Ben Abraham today. <laughs> He's stepped into the pantsless studio uh, and it's in quite a state today. It's beautiful. It's in a perfectly, a perfect creative environment. Mm-hmm. Last time I saw you, you were uh, on stage at the Athenaeum Theatre ah, yes. doing your final curtain call for yes. what was a truly epic gig oh, thank you. on multiple levels. Um, yeah, I never really got a chance to tell you that it was a really, a very emotional gig for me. I've never cried at a gig before, but I, wow, uh, I, I wept. Um, okay, let's talk about that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> we'll go there yeah, first. Yeah. We don't have to do that now, but I, I'm interested to hear what, sure. what um, took you over. We can, we, can, we can go there. We'll start here and then we'll go off on many tangents so, and then we'll come wait. back. I can't wait. That's usually the way these things flow. Yeah. Um, tell me about the process of coming to this gig because it's essentially the culmination of eight years of work, mm. writing tunes throughout your 20s. Um, yeah, and then putting out your first record, and then playing that back to front for one night only at the mm. Athenaeum Theatre. Yeah, <laughs> sounds so anticlimactic, but it wasn't. It was the perfect finishing event for me. Um, yeah, the I guess the Athenaeum. So looking at that show specifically, which obviously happened in July. Um, I was calling it an album launch, but it that was really just a PR thing to get people to take it seriously and come where they ah. might otherwise not have. Um, because, it, you know, the album had already come out. I'd released it myself the year before. So it was more about I had always wanted to play my music in that sort of space. I feel like as a musician especially when it comes to the performance of your work something to really think about is the environment that you're playing it in um you know and and 
certainly as an artist, like what kind of environment do I want to be associated with, with my music or what do I want my music to be associated with? And for me, it is places like that, these beautiful big theaters where it's immersive, where you sit down and you sort of are surrounded by people that are all kind of in an experience with you rather than standing at a pub holding a beer and stuff, which is another experience. It's a different <laughs> thing. I mean, I wish I could pull those experiences off, but I can't. Um, you so have a beer in your hand. Because I don't have a beer in my hand and because my music makes people cry. <laughs> I feel like, you know, crying. Who cries at you? Yeah. <laughs> I've been told. I've been told. So the Athenaeum was, in many ways, uh, it was about me basically fighting to put my work in that space. So in that way, when I look at how my work even came together and what, you know, the way that the album came together and the way the songs came together, the Athenaeum became this like super spiritual milestone for me to just go this is it like I've worked really hard as you say a lot of the songs were written from when I was like 20 21 all the way through to 28 and then the album was recorded over the course of about two or three years and it was kind of everything was just so epic but I look back now and realize that it was this fight to push this thing uphill to ultimately get my work in the space that I think it's supposed that I felt like it was supposed to be in and I think it worked I don't really know. It was a bit of a blur. <laughs> I don't remember the night that well, but um, but it definitely felt amazing to have pulled it off and to walk out on that stage and have the room full of people, some of whom, some of which had been there from the very beginning of my days as a musician, through to the most recent friends, and to just kind of go, wow, like I did it. I pushed this rock up the hill, mm. and it worked. When did we meet? It must have been... 2007, I'm going to guess, or 2008. It was 2008. 2008. As you said, some people who'd been there from the beginning. I That's mean, well, I you pretty much had been there from the beginning because by, at the time that I met you, which mm. was Sarah's... It was February 2008, it must have mm. been, because yeah, it was yeah. Sarah's 30th. can't believe I remember this. Uh, and we watched your video. Your video is such a reductive term. Isn't it? We watched your short film. <laughs> watched I apologize. We watched your little video. Uh <laughs> No, and I remember we just watched being Shotgun. so impressed. Yeah, yeah, that's like, right, dude. Because I was studying screenwriting at the time, so I was yeah, just like yeah. super excited to meet anybody else that was working in that field. But that was the start. I wasn't really seriously performing music then, mm, except on one little well, reality I'd, show. That oh, we know. Oh, oh yeah, that we thing. need not yeah, mention. Hey, <laughs> you ask the question, I'll answer it. Mm. About that. Just whatever. <laughs> if you ask, I'll answer, but maybe I won't volunteer information. I ramble, by the way. You need to know that. So just jump in. Have you listened to this podcast? I have. <laughs> I have, but I might not be as articulate as Damien Walsh Howling. So. You're pretty articulate. Oh, cheers. Um, he's great, by the way. I, that was he's fantastic. Episode, yeah. Yeah, interviewing him was an absolute dream. I, he's He was the first person that came in that I'd only met like once or twice before. Yeah, okay. So I didn't have a really established rapport with him. Yeah. Um, no, he's a. I. It's just nice to hear like a working Aussie actor, with a good. Oh, this is going to sound so self-righteous. What I'm about to say. Go on. But with a just with a really <laughs> solid resume, but just seems so like grounded and so. Mm. Um, I don't know. Just the stories he told about Hollywood and his travels, and just the sort of sense of absurdity to it, because there is an absurdity to this concept Hugely. of performing and traveling for it and stuff. Mm. I don't know. It was, it was cool. He's a cool guy. Touch a little bit on this uh, reality show that you did. Sure. And tell me, because I remember the first time that we actually hung out, you were very sheepish. I think you maybe done it six months earlier or a year earlier at that point. No, it would have been no. years and years earlier. Ah, right. Two th- two th- 
2003, The Legends. Right. Yes. Um, but maybe it had just come up in conversation recently or something. Well, you and I, this was this would have been in 2008, I mm. think, when we when we hung out. I think we talked about Shotgun and talked about um, your script writing. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned it, but you were very reserved about it. You didn't want to talk about it at all. And I feel like retrospectively, you might look back on it now and go, that was actually a massive turning point for me because it showed you what you didn't want to be doing. Mm. Yeah. No, I, well, yeah, I still, you know, it's still, part of me still embarrassed to be associated with it, but mm. that's, I guess that's kind of dumb. It was a turning point. And bizarrely, my experience was that I went in, I didn't even want to do music, but I just was like, I can sing. I can probably sing better than a few of these people that are on these shows, which sounds conceited. But if you think about like pop stars and the shows that had gone before, the winners generally weren't like mariah carey level singers so i was like mm. well i can sing at least that well so i sort of thought this might be a bit of fun and um interestingly like yeah the experience was so kind of weird and traumatic enough that i came out of it going well i'm glad that was an experience and i'm never going to make music in that environment again mm. uh and then yeah basically immediately following that went into screenwriting and was so set on i'm going to be a filmmaker i'm going to do screenwriting at mit then hopefully do the undergrad at the vca and then be really rich and famous <laughs> as a director. What was what was it that was kind of traumatic about that experience? I think it was being made to... Well, I don't know. I'm looking back now, thinking about it. I, I just remember that feeling of not knowing who I was. And that whole process is about walking into a room and kind of going what do you think I should be? Like, you know, here's what I can do, but what do you think I should do with that? Mm. And I just, now as a musician, now as an artist, where I feel actually creatively empowered to have my own voice, not just singing voice, but creative voice, it just seems so against, philosophically against everything I think an artist should be. Mm. But I was a kid and I didn't think like that. I didn't, you know, like my music tastes and everything changed after that experience. Mm. Because I just suddenly was like, well, if I'm going to, get into music i want to know what i'm doing with it i don't just want to be this mindless kind of you know i don't i don't want to just sing and get a kick out of the sound of my voice i want to actually know what i'm singing about and think about what i'm writing about if i'm going to write songs and stuff like that mm. and yeah the trauma was just like you know being made to like that was good now sing it like this and we'll give you a rating out of 10 and we'll tell you if you're just as good as these other 90 people and uh, mm. it's just a circus and it's you know of course it's all for ratings and all that stuff big meat factory yes and, it, you know, the the beautiful irony or the sad irony of it is that over the years, it doesn't produce careers, really. Like, it certainly doesn't... Pro it can't deliver on the promise of career. Mm. You know, obviously, there are some amazing success stories, and I'm glad that we have them, like Guy and Jess Moboy and even Matt Corby and Dummy M and all those different reality stars. But, yeah, for the most part, it's not producing that much. No, it doesn't really produce a finished product. It's like, it's quite literally your 15 minutes of fame and then mm. on to the next one. Yeah, well, and certainly not, I didn't realize at the time, but certainly not the kind of musician or the kind of artist that I want to be, mm. which I didn't know what I wanted to be back then. Mm. And I didn't even realize I would never have been able to tell you that there was a connection between the music that I wanted to make and the films I wanted to make or the storytelling in my screenplays and different things. And yet now to me, it's just all the same thing, mm. you know, and I didn't know that back then, so... Yeah, I feel like in some way my journey 
if you like, has been kind of parallel in terms of the artistry and really finding and establishing who I want to be and the sort of creator that I want to be, mm. um, which is incidentally how this whole thing has come yeah. up. Um, let's take a step backwards for a second before the reality show. Yes. Because I know that you come from a very musical background mm. and your family, your parents were pop singers in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've come from quite a um, religious family. Yes. And a big component of that, I mean, you know, Nick and I grew up Jewish, going to synagogue. A big component of a lot of religion is singing. Yeah. And um, that vocal kind of aspect of community and tradition. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like that played a part in developing and nurturing this talent of yours? Oh, I think it was huge in the way that I interact with music because music for me from the very beginning was so spiritual and communal, which are two things that I think are really important to me in my identity as an artist and as a musician. And the two things that probably keep me coming back to music in terms of my passion, like I didn't study music, I didn't, I don't approach music with the sort of mathematical or kind of, I don't see it as this like playground for interesting chords or interesting aesthetics. Maybe I'm growing more and more into that sort of world. But to begin with, it was always about a spiritual expression or something that you did with family and with community. And what I like about that upbringing is that how much it's fed my career and how much it's fed my style as an artist. You know, I'm interested in music that, as being this way to collaborate with people and bring people in. And um, yeah, I love, like I have this desire to work with as many different people as I can of different genres, of different styles, different backgrounds. And I can only put that down to the fact that music was always so communal and I respond so much to that idea. And my shows, I try and get at different points, audience members to sort of sing along to different lines or, you know, because that's a part of my value system with music is the community aspect. And then, you know, I think the spiritual side is, interesting because it is somehow music was always more than just you know the one three five chord progression or the the timbre of that drum sound or whatever like of course those things are there but for me somehow it all pointed to something bigger than itself and i think that's where the spiritual aspect has come in and informed what i'm doing it's somehow like yeah okay i'm making these sounds but i'm hoping that they are communicating something so much bigger than just the A flat, mm. you know, if that makes sense. I mean, yeah, and it's, yeah, that's certainly how I create it. It's, and I, you know, I don't know how it's received, but that's how it was made. Oh no, your music is certainly very soulful, um, and certainly touches me right in the feeling buttons. The feeling buttons, right in the feeling nice. buttons. Well, apparently, it, <laughs> apparently, it did at the gig. It certainly did at the gig. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious about what you mean by the spiritual aspect of it and how that kind of started up for you. Do you feel like this community that's created and then the the energy of the music can create a kind of spiritual experience for people? Yeah, I think... Well, uh, the way I would see it in, in the context of like a spiritual context would be that it's about communication there's sort of a, it's a form of language i remember listening to a podcast actually with a composer called marcos bolter who 
said this, he was like, I don't like this idea of music as a language because it's not that axiomatic, this idea that that sound directly sort of accurately represents that exact feeling or whatever. And I understand that, but I think if you go broader than that in a spiritual sense, you know, if you want to communicate how you feel about something or communicate a response or articulate a response to something, there are so many different things you can do. You can have silence, you can use words, you can kind of have a thought of like, I feel happy, I feel sad, that is beautiful. But in the process of doing that, you have to still use, you kind of articulate the thought, then use the mouth mouth to kind of convert that thought into words. And in doing so, it sort of reduces it. Whereas for me, with music, those feelings, those thoughts, and that response can come out as sound and somehow is so much more, can be so much more expressive than the reductive nature of language. It can be so much broader, just sound, you know, and... I think in the context of spirituality, that's really interesting to me because if there is a spiritual world out there, then surely there's a way to communicate with that in so many different ways, in silence, in language, and then in sound and in music. And so, yeah, and then look, the other interesting part about it is that when you have a room full of people singing the same thing, that's quite profound as well and quite beautiful. And I feel like you very rarely get to experience that in any other form of life Mm. you know certainly in this country like i always think it's interesting that so many of those reality shows going back to that have so many people with like church backgrounds or christian backgrounds because in australia we don't give there aren't that many other forums with which to kind of sing Mm. unless you're a performer like instantly if you sing you're a performer or you go to church Mm. and i think that that we don't have sort of as much of a folk music background you know so yeah i don't know i'm straying Mm. wandering (laughs) wandering through the park of my thoughts i like that wandering through the park of your thoughts um it's the name of my my art album yeah art album yeah we'll do an art music album next right that's cool (laughs) the park of ben's thoughts it sounds like the most boring album ever well it depends what sort of park it is correct is it like an adventure playground yes yeah yes and now you're talking big pirate ship yeah exactly it's a children's album (laughs) wait why can't it be for adults children uh true okay it's like a hybrid kids it's like it's like a kids album for adults in the same way that adults now have like those coloring books yeah i found out about that the other day friend of mine went overseas and she was telling me that she got a coloring book that's like a meditation thing yep somebody's making a lot of money because i just think buy an exercise book and a pen and some coloring pencils and just go and draw something Mm. it's the same experience yeah or buy a children's coloring book or buy it (laughs) well yeah exactly it's probably a lot cheaper it's the way the world works (laughs) um you got to create the demand exactly and then you give who knew that we wanted coloring books like Someone did because they make a lot of money. Mr. Coloring, coloring. Bookman. <laughs> Ari yep. Coloring Bookman. Ari. <laughs> of course, his name's Ari. Yeah. It's actually Bookberg, but. Oh, Bookberg. Okay. Yeah. I like it. Um, so, was church a big fixture for you growing up? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And my parents are church ministers now. Um, but growing up, that was the environment with which I interacted with music. And mm. that has its limitations. Like, you know, my knowledge of chord structure and stuff is probably not as exciting as it could have been had I approached music in a different way. But then, it, you know, I just now I'm learning about those things mm. as an adult on my own rather than having studied it or, you know, been introduced to it in 
piano lessons in grade five. Mm. You know. um, so was church something that really excited you because of this musical sort of aspect or was it more like... Yeah, I, yeah but I wouldn't have isolated the music. I feel like I became self-aware as a musician pretty late. Mm. Certainly as a musician, like confidently, like, oh, I make music. I have the ability to to make music and, you know, have a voice in that art form. That came much later. It wasn't like I was this kid who was just constantly like, give me all the music and everything. I just, yeah. So church community was much more just about the people and the family. And, mm. you know, there are five kids in my family. So it was always just our lives. That was, yeah. And so was it a very, was it very musical at home as well? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, very musical. Yeah, like my both my parents were pop singers before we were born. And then by the time we were born, that world was kind of behind them, but they were doing a lot more music in church. So again, we were just raised watching them, you know, play music and do that sort of stuff. Um, and then, yeah, like my dad plays flute, used to teach flute, taught all of us. We used to learn piano, a lot of Suzuki method. Mm. I mean, well, I, I loosely use that term. I mostly played Twinkle Twinkle on the flute and that was about <laughs> it. And probably about the same for piano. I was going to say, I don't know what the Suzuki method is. It's just, it's it's a whole thing. It's a whole other podcast. It's right. basically like, it's, I think it's the idea of like learning to play by ear rather than necessarily read music. Mm. So if you ever see videos of like kids at like four years old playing like amazing violin or flute, chances are that they've been taught the Suzuki method. Right. Mm. Um, so do you remember back in that sort of period of time and I know that you said that you said that you came to being a musician a bit later on in your mm. life but do you remember the first time that you really connected to music or to performing or entertaining or whatever it may be that really sort of thrust you into or onto this trajectory yeah yeah I feel like there was definitely a very specific moment actually with this um which was quite a long story but let's just do the very very short version which is i started working for the starlight children's foundation uh as a captain starlight and we travel around the hospital rooms um at the royal children's hospital and just interact with kids and kind of distract them from the hospital environment and we were encouraged to use tools of engagement that came natural to us and you know with different with a team of different personalities you naturally then had different skill sets and stuff and i didn't really play guitar but i you know had enough music skill and understanding that I took a guitar with me and walked around and ended up meeting a kid, a teenage girl who was in hospital with anorexia and she'd been there for months and those kids are usually pretty grumpy and they're quite funny. I like teasing them a little bit, but they <laughs> they just really, they don't engage with anyone. They don't like you because, you know, if you ever see what they have to go through in hospital, it's pretty awful. Um, but anyway, I in trying to connect, ended up writing a song with this girl uh, she was like 13 or 14 and we wrote a song together kind of about the hospital environment about what it's like to be stuck and that's it's, the song's called let your light and it was just about this like it's very it's kind of cheesy and very sincere but it was perfect for a 13 year old and perfect for where i was at, at the time and the lyrics are all about you know like just come and shine a little bit of light in my life uh and anyway i showed it to my boss it, luckily she was a good songwriter <laughs> if she was bad, then I don't know what I would have done. Uh, but yeah, so we wrote this song together. I showed my boss. My boss loved it. And they ended up, Starlight ended up getting me to sing it at a fundraiser Wow. Um, in Melbourne. 
And it went so well that they then got me to sing it in Sydney. Then they got me to sing it in Adelaide and Perth and Brisbane. And I got, you know, I did the, the full tour. And uh, it was the first time ever since the reality show days that the concept of writing and performing music probably, I guess, connected in with that part of me that was so fascinated by narrative mm. that I didn't even necessarily know I was drawn to you know but that idea of like whatever it was that had me in screenwriting just being loving narrative and telling stories this was the first time when those two things combined and then watching the way that the audience reacted and responded to something that I had written and I was up there performing it and I don't know it just it was just like this kind of singularity that then I went ah, oh, I'm gonna make music this is fun I can do this mm. you know and it sort of saved me from the neurosis of being a terrible screenwriting student because <laughs> I basically spent that entire course going I don't think I'm very good at this I don't know if I can write so yeah well you certainly write very cinematic and uh, story driven songs the structuring of your, a lot of your songs is quite similar to the way one might structure yeah a screenplay yes I think I'm bound by that I mean that that's a good I guess it's a good or a bad thing like I think it's a good thing except you know when I try to break from that mold, I don't know how to think like that. Mm. So I listen to lyricists like Tom York, who I love, and I just idolize is the wrong word, but I wish I could write like that. But I can't get my head away from like a literal narrative. Mm. I'm like, well, what's the story? You know, but then that's, I guess that's just what I do and what I am drawn to. So. Mm. You wouldn't write very good house music. I could not. I wish I could. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's just about finding that one line in a house song and then just singing that over and over and over. Mm. Yeah, just pick your favorite line from all of your songs and just put it to a loop. Yep, perfect. I'm going to put it on my kids, on my Parker Thoughts album. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's really one of my thoughts. So. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's, it could be a collaboration. You should probably go in my Parker Thoughts. Yeah, that's book. true. That's true. Mine's okay. more like a beach of thoughts. A beach. Yeah. Yep. Just, okay. yeah, it's really granular. Yep. And wet. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of seagulls. Yes, and dead jellyfish. And bikinis. There's a few bikinis. Yeah, okay. Um, something that's really become very meaningful to me, which is what you were talking about there, is the importance of the story. Mm. And I think that with the story, you really take the emphasis off yourself. It no longer becomes about... It's deeply personal for you, but it's it no longer becomes about something self-serving. It's about, like you said touching a community or creating a community yep. or um, putting something out that is bigger than just you singing a song. Mm. How, how important is that for you? Well, I don't know if, I don't know how, about the word important. It just is what I do. But the reason I highlight that semantic sort of idea of like, whether it's important to me or not is that, Someone's actually used this as a criticism of my work. Right. That someone close to me, a good friend, who just pointed out that there's an intimacy to my music. It's quite gentle and intimate, in the, certainly in the way I perform it. Um, but the unfair sort of bait and switch is that in listening to my music, you feel like you're meeting me, but you're not really because so many of the songs are narrative about other people or about other people's experiences. So it's interesting. Mm. Somebody pointed that out. Like some of the songs are so intimate um the negative sort of version of that might be that someone listens and goes wow i'm really getting 
an insight into you, but if you really look at the lyrics, you're kind of not. You're just getting an insight into me telling someone else's story. And that's evident when I do my shows and I this was also pointed out to me that I'll often introduce songs going, this is a song I wrote for this person. This is a song I wrote inspired by this person's life. But in, like very few of my songs are like, here is my heart on my sleeve. Mm. Yeah, But I think that's that a beautiful sense. thing to have that sort of empathy to be able to yeah. construct a reality. Because I mean, it is your heart on your sleeve. You can't write someone else's experience. You can write your version of their well, experience. That's, yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah, no, you're right. So, yeah, but I certainly, narrative is how I think I understand my life and then certainly the lives of the people around me. It's story. Like it's, Mm. it's the same thing with film. It's what draws me to film is when I find a clear narrative through line or just, yeah, when it feels like there's a fleshed out narrative present in something that's so interesting to me. Mm. You tell a lot of stories like, uh, was there a big culture of that growing up for you? No. I know, isn't that funny? I feel like I wish I had a better answer to that. But no, I, I don't know what it is that has drawn me to it. But yeah, I'm so I'm very deeply moved by story and by like I love nerding out over the dynamics of like let's say if there's a film that I love, I love going into the to the like deep analysis of mm. like the moments, like picking the minute mark where a major turning point happens or something. Yeah, just going, yeah. oh, I love how they did that. And they, you know, I don't know, <laughs> that stuff, I really nerd out on that stuff. And it's because it is story. I love finding creative ways of communicating stories. Mm. Um, yeah. Do you like the new Mad Max? I loved the new Mad Max. It's pretty funny. I have to epic. confess though, I haven't, I've only seen the first Mad Max. So I haven't seen the second and third, mm. but Oh, I just, the new one felt like a story for our time. Like it just, it blew me away. I, my favorite thing about that was, and don't, there's like, I couldn't rave on about these things forever. So cut me off whenever, but I loved how subversive it was. It was subversive to the genre. Like it was subversive to what action is. It was subversive to gender roles. Like I loved, you know, what, just all the things that the women in that film did, all the things that the men in that film did and the kind of conclusions that you're left with, whether he kind of is underscoring that or not mm. oh i loved it i love and i just yeah i even loved when people kind of came out going the story was like so simple it was just a car chase and i was like oh man like <laughs> yes it kind of on one level it was but then there's also this deeply like layered kind of mm. metaphor for humanity as well yeah i sound like such a film wanker but i i really got into it. i saw it twice film actually. buff film bu- <laughs> i feel like no one i feel like Yes, I don't mind that term if someone else applies it, but I feel like too many people apply that film buff to themselves. People call me a film buff. I'm like, man, I am not a film buff. I reckon I've been to the cinema five times in the last year. But yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. Yeah, I just... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, you know what it is? I feel like film buff, I just see that show up in like online blogs a lot. Yeah. Whereas I'm like, no, I'm more than a film buff. I'm like, I live and breathe it. I'm like... Yeah, that's dumb though. Connoisseur? <laughs> yeah. You just, yeah. you are a film. I just am a film. All of life is is a one big film. Yeah. yeah. The world is a stage and all of the men and women that's are right. players. Someone smart said that, I think. Yeah. Bill. <laughs> yeah. Something around Billy that. something. Connolly, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can I do a Billy Connolly impression? No. No, I can't. I'm going to cut that back. <laughs> I would have loved it, though. <laughs> I did hear um, 
Ian McKellen, Sir Ian McKellen, mm. say that on a podcast, and I tried to imitate him saying it, and I couldn't do it. No. <laughs> this is just a big anticlimax of yeah. me not doing impressions. <laughs> not. That's that can go on your art album, and now yeah. a track of not impressions. Yep. with Alistair Marks. The beach of my yeah. impressions. Yeah, the beach of impressions. If someone does an impression and no one's around to hear it, <laughs> did he really do it? Who did it impress? <laughs> Very good. Uh, so you started then when we kind of met, you started doing like a little pub mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Playing, gigging, but you never wrote, you never, sorry, you never released an album no. at that point. No. What sort of inspired you to actually take a step into this after you'd had that experience with the um, Starlight Foundation? What inspired me to play? Or do you mean ultimately what inspired me to record? I guess what inspired you to actually start writing tunes and Mm. gigging and um, treating it as something quite serious? Yeah, I I don't fully remember every moment, but I know that the experience at Starlight just gave me a lot of confidence in the in the idea that I could write songs and then and I'd organized my first gig um back then my first proper like headlining gig was at this venue called Manchester Land which doesn't exist anymore it's now Shabin in Melbourne but uh, at the time it was like this jazz sort of room and yeah I booked my first ever show and just with songs that I don't even know what some of the, like funnily some of the songs on my on my record now we, we played them at that show mm. um, particularly the song Time I think that's the one that's been around the longest um, but yeah I you know I think I did this one show and then all these people came and loved it and I had such a good time and I just felt so like validated as a writer that it just suddenly I, I started thinking okay like maybe then one of the ways I can process this desire to write is through the music. So up until then, obviously it would have been, it's like what happens with film or with short film. You just have an idea of going, I want to see someone respond to grief by running out the front door of their house, running, running and never stopping. And, you know, I find with film, I used to start like that. So I, I would go, oh, wouldn't it be amazing to have someone receive some terrible news and their only response, which they can't even control, is to get up and run and never stop running. And then you construct the world of the story around that feeling maybe, or that maybe that's the hook. Um, and I used to do that a lot with film. I'd go, oh, I, wanna, I wonder what it would be like to, I don't know, what if a homeless girl found a baby? Or, you know, I don't, all those sorts of things, but like it's a little, usually a little bit more <laughs> interesting than that. But uh, it's pretty interesting. I guess. I watched that film. <laughs> Jeez. After the music experience, I think I still had those instincts of like, what if you deal with grief by running? But then suddenly it's like, oh, I have this option now to turn that into a song mm. rather than explore that universe through a film narrative. And um, yeah, and I, and I bizarrely felt way more, even though I'd never really confidently written music before then, I suddenly found myself way more confident doing that than I did with film. So pretty quickly... I stopped studying screenwriting. I mean, look, I still, I, funnily, I still want to do all that. Yeah. And ironically, I've met way more people in the film world as a musician than I ever did as a screenwriting student. But I definitely pretty quickly was like, okay, music is what I'm doing. And this is, this is the world that, within which I'm telling these stories mm. the next little while. And how did you come about? One of the most striking things I remember from the first time that I heard you play was the fact that you actually sang with your natural accent. That um, was... 
I had to make a decision to do that, which sounds suddenly, I guess that sounds like it might be an affectation. But if you think about it, the other, the, the unconscious decision to sing with an American accent, for me, that's the problem. And you just do it, I guess, because you're so, you, when you're a kid, like you're just so used to singing like that. And again, because Australian culture, we don't grow up singing with each other. So all we really sing along to is usually music that's coming from America. So I remember there was a moment when I was like, yeah, around that time, 2021, where I was just like, wait a minute, I'm just going to sing how I talk. And I, you know, the only people that were doing that were people like Missy Higgins at the time. And I didn't understand it when I first heard her singing, but all of a sudden as I started to do it, I suddenly was like, oh man, I get this. I get why this feels important as the artist, because it's like, this is what I sound, this is how I say that word. So this is how I'm going to sing that word, mm. you know? And yeah, it's, I've, people don't bring it up as much, but they certainly used to. They used to be like, oh, now obviously back then they were like, oh, you're just doing what Missy Higgins is doing. And she's not the worst it. criticism. I'd be like, sweet, she's amazing. Mm. But um, yeah, that certainly feels important for me because I'm so much trying to, you know, do this as me, find the authenticity of my voice, you know? Mm. And you were described as the Indonesian Missy Higgins. And I was once described by a friend as the Indonesian Missy Higgins. Yes. <laughs> I love that you remember that. Huh? Did I tell you that? Did I? No, I read it. Yeah. Okay. That's funny. In doing the research yeah. <laughs> via wow. the Google. You have gone deep. This that is, is out there in the world. It is indeed. Along with being described as having a voice like Marvin Gaye serving you hot chocolate on a cold winter's night. Who said that? I don't, I don't remember reading that. This I'll is, take it. Uh, it was a review on it. What was it? Be the Beast or something. Perfect. Sorry, I shouldn't even ask you. Wait. I should just be like, yes, all these things are out. We'll do it. We'll, we'll go again. And you've also been described as having a, a voice that feels like Marvin Gaye is serving you hot chocolate on a cold <laughs> winter's night. <laughs> yep. <laughs> just, that's, that's so funny. Like, is Marvin Gaye singing at you when he's serving you hot chocolate? Like, is it? No, it's just the surprise that you the, would have to, to find that your waiter just, is Marvin Gaye. Yeah, like, is the, I don't know. Is it? Is it? Is my voice like the chocolate part, or is it like the? I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, you take from yeah. that what you will. <laughs> well, I love those descriptors, though. His voice is like Marvin Gaye doing push-ups. Mm. Like, you know, I don't know. It's after a very hard round of dumbbell squats. Yep. And table tennis. Mm. Yep. Always with the ping pong. Mm. Uh, and so I guess um, the extension of what you grew up with mm. and that folk music and the gospel music kind of, and I guess via cinema studies, the extension of that becomes yeah. a folk cinematic yeah. style of music or musicianship. Yep. How, how did that happen? Well... The term cinematic folk, which we sort of have been using for the album as we talk about it, I say we because it's me and the two guys that produced it with me, John O'Steer and Lee Fisher. John O actually kind of came up with that term. And I really, I loved it and sort of jumped on it and was like, yes, that's what it is. Because in the early stages of my music, because I didn't know what I was doing, for the most part, it was just me on a piano or me on a guitar making music. So there was no sonic universe for it. It was just one instrument and one voice. But part of what you do as a musician growing up through the early stages of your kind of career is go, well, what is my sound? And that's such a dumb question, but it is something that you kind of need to know. Like what, what is it that I'm doing? And in the recording of the album, the three of us had to really workshop 
what does this album sound like? Is it electronic sounds? Is it acoustic sounds? Is it because we had one instrument and one vocal to play with? It could have been anything. Mm. And um, we just realized that the songs had these beautiful kind of open chord and open arrangements that you could add lots of texture. And as we built them up together, you sort of re- we realized, okay, this is it is kind of cinematic, like it, you know. And um, it actually, over the course of producing the album, I would say that was the moment when we kind of uncovered the universe of what my music was Mm. because up until then I played with a band but it was still most of the time my band gigs were 80% me on my own and then 20% here are some fun songs with my band (laughs) whereas when it came time to the album I was like well now we actually have the ability to find out what where did what universe do these songs live in and um that was a really fun process to kind of go through and I think the cinematic folk sort of idea is great for me because I'm I'm interested in the sounds of the record communicating narrative just as much as the the lyrics of the songs and even now that I've started doing like live concerts and stuff and when it came time to doing the artwork for the record I extend now this concept of like cinematic or like visual narrative to every aspect of it um, so even the show like you'll notice there's a little bit of theater to it we started oh off, yes I mean obviously we're on a podcast so people that weren't there it sucks to be you but you know, we start off with like, there was this dramatic opening entrance of me on my own and then the curtain raises and a bit of a smoke band, machine as well. Yeah, it was a little uh-huh. bit of a smoke machine. Um, but all because I'm trying to extend this idea of visual storytelling mm. and the universe of the record of the music. Mm. To be a bit crude, I guess it's the inception of your brand and the Ben totally. brand. Oh yeah, that's not crude. That's just, that's how we have to live these days yep. you know um but it's all it is very powerful when you yeah brand is one word for it and then i guess just your artistic identity is the other side and i think it's really powerful when you encounter well i know i the artists i love have a real strong sense of themselves and mm. what they're doing and how that extends visually and it's certainly the kind of artist that i am where like every photo shoot i do now every video every sketch that represents my music i want it all to somehow tie into the overarching narrative you know which Mm. makes me sound like a total control freak but good (laughs) (laughs) when you uh as you arrive at this point of really discovering your brand and, and your voice and your um artistic stamp is this something that you're finding on your own or are you being mentored through or do you have people who... Um, I read something about you where you talked about the importance of mentors. Mm. Um, uh, definitely having mentors is something that's been really important for me. I um, I don't know why it is. I've, I guess for some reason I've always had this thing in to my personality where I feel like in anything I need to be initiated in. Um, so maybe as a songwriter and performer, maybe the starlight experience was my initiation into feeling like I have a right to be here. Surely that's a bit of a man thing. You just, it's the rites of passage in any, mm. and in, I've never been the kind of person to just dive in, even though I might sit here and watch something and go, I want to be part of that world. I don't know how to do that myself. So I, I've always naturally found people that, you know, I seek out relationships with people that I might feel will give me the confidence to, you know, um, and sometimes it is as blatant as just saying to someone, I hope this is okay. I'd love to sit down and have a coffee with you and just ask you questions, you know. Mm. Um, and because of that, 
I've, yeah, I've been able to meet some incredible people that have then been, become these amazing like mentors. So, you know, this is going to sound horrific in the Australian anti-name dropping Do it. sort of stakes. But this is all about the name drop. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop some names. Um, you drop those names. So, you know, I, I remember I very awkwardly emailed Wally DeBacker one, you know, once years ago now. Um, and as most people would probably know him as Gautier, but uh, Wally was between records at the time and I was looking around at different people's careers that I that I thought I'd love to do similar work to what they're doing not similar music because we're so different but the way that he conducts his music his whole brand and persona i was so fascinated by and loved and so i just thought he's someone that i think i could talk to so i remember sending him this super awkward email i found it years later and it was really really you can just imagine (laughs) i was a kid though i was all like you don't know me you don't probably don't care about my music but you know whatever uh but anyway a few of those emails yeah that's right (laughs) except substitute music for film yeah that's right and you're full of like self-deprecating like it's nothing like here's just some terrible stuff i made you know but anyway he he was the first one of these kind of key relationships i guess where he was like hey man your stuff sounds really beautiful i'd love to sit down and have coffee with you i'd love to talk um And just as a side note, the boldness to do this actually came from my film studies. When I was studying, there was a girl in my class who um, had had done the undergraduate at the VCA and was working in TV at the time as a director. And she pointed out to us that the Australian film industry is so small and everyone's working so hard to just make ends meet in a sense, but also obviously make good work that nobody, it's not like America, nobody's like untouchable. And um, her example was that you could find... um, Gillian Armstrong, uh, you know, the Aussie director, obviously not the X-Files actor. Um, you could find Gillian or Gillian, whatever it is. Yeah, that's right, Scully. Um, for those playing at home, Gillian Armstrong directed Little Women. I think that's the one I can remember and others. Um, who You know, who had a production office in Sydney and you could find her in the book, whatever that big book was that the film industry has, you know, all the names in it. I can't remember from my film days. Uh, and you could organize to have coffee with her and say, I'd love to just meet with you and talk about stuff. And she would. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, because everyone's just working. We're working in a job. It's, you know. So anyway, that's where that confidence to seek out Wally came from. And then we ended up becoming friends. And he, he's just been an amazing encouragement for me. And then, you know, there have been other people like um, Sarah Borellis is another one who I met who also has been equally as, you know, it's a genuine friendship, but also she's. She's been through so many amazing musical experiences. The number of times I've emailed her and just gone, I quit everything in like all cap, you know, all caps and stuff. And she's just like, <laughs> just put your head down and ignore everything that's happening around you and just make good music, you know. Mm. Um, and she's on your album. And she's and she's on my album. We wrote a song together and sang it together. Yeah. And it was on you. And it was on me, although she says it was on her. So That's true. Yeah. But it wasn't a wrecking ball. It, it wasn't. This is a, album specific jokes that I feel like listeners. It's good because listeners have to. They have to go and listen you have to, to it. Go now. And get See what the I'm doing now. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Yeah, BenAbraham.com. Ben Abraham. Well, finally, they can't actually get the album until it's re-released. Uh, I don't know. This is we're we're treading into ground that I don't fully know. But my album is actually not available anywhere. For, an right. for a couple of months I have it if anyone would like you do have it copy. yeah that's right they can just call you up and hear it over the phone that's, yeah. that's how they do it perfect yeah. I'm actually just going to hold my phone up to the microphone for an hour <laughs> and a half after you're done I like it um, 
Yeah, that ballsy thing is definitely something, or that boldness, or whatever you want to call mm. it, putting yourself out there. Yeah, uh, is certainly something that has served me well, and it's I, th- I think again some, uh, something that we share that we mm. have in common. I remember I was uh, living in New York for four or five years ago, mm. and I knew I was going over there, and I knew I was going to be in LA for three or four weeks. So I sent out a whole. I went on. I had an IMDb Pro account where yeah, you, you could did. see some people's uh, contact details. Yeah, mate. And I just sent uh, Phil Noyce, the director. Yeah. Um, uh, I sent him an email. Yeah. And you know, I sent this. I, it was never a generic email. It was always personalized. Yeah. But I said, you know, I love your films. I love your work. I'd love to. I'm coming to LA. I'm, you know, an Australian filmmaker. I've worked with these people before. You know, name drop so that totally you're taken more seriously. Of course course um and which is a very american and appropriate thing to do yeah um but you know it's part of the tall poppy thing is that you totally know, we, we shouldn't hate be, it uh, people it's so dumb too because it's like if you i don't know if you're going for a job or if you're talking about you know i'm an accountant at this firm and i worked here and here and here these were my clients mm. we wouldn't bat an eyelid you know yeah i'm going to name drop. i guess it's different if you're i guess it's like these are my friends and i went and had you know, I went to such and such Tom Hanks's birthday party. That's kind of mm. annoying. But if you're talking about who you worked with and stuff, you got to do it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, even something like this podcast, you know, saying that I've interviewed Molly Meldrum and um, Damien Walsh Howling totally. and Michaela Bannis, it gives a credibility yeah. to people who don't know what it is, who don't know what Absolutely. I am and what I'm about. So wait, did Phil Noyce tell me you met Phil Noyce? So I, I got a, an email back from his assistant. Yeah. Uh, one of the only people who wrote back to me. Um, and she was like, yeah, Phil's happy to meet with you. Let us know when you're coming over, um, and we'll work it out. So I went over, um, and yeah, when I was in LA, just went and hung out with him for That's sick. a few hours one day, just went to his house. Um, I love that. And I'm just sitting there looking at all these posters of yeah. all the films he's directed <laughs> while I'm waiting for him. And he's in a, on a phone call and I'm sitting in the office while he's on this phone call and he is negotiating getting um, Martin Sheen on some project. Yeah, and I'm yeah, like, yeah. So sick. I was thinking, actually, I was thinking about Dead Calm the other day, mm. which he directed, I'm pretty sure. Mm. And uh, I was just thinking about what a great film that is. And I feel like we don't talk, we don't, we don't talk about that film very much as a great Aussie film, but that's mm. a great Aussie genre film. How that's unusual it, huh? is that? You know, Dead Calm, Nicole Kidman, Sam Neill, and... The dude, the bad guy from Titanic. Nick knows what I'm talking about. He does. He does um, know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's just a great... It's sort of like a... It's a... Um, Billy Zane. Billy Zane. There you go. It's like... Uh, Your friend Billy Zane. Yeah, my best friend Billy Zane. What was that? A cul-de-sac. Who's the director of that? It's that kind of idea. Anyway, it's a right. great film. Just a great genre... Aussie genre film about a, a couple who are off sailing. And then another boat sort of is in a bit of a wreck and they come upon Billy Zane right? and he gets on and then he may not be what he appears. Right. So this great thriller where they're out at sea and Polanski is cul-de-sac. It's similar sort of vibe to that. Film. Gotcha. But anyway, uh, there you go. Phil Noyce. Yeah. So tell me you guys are best friends now. Well, it was certainly one of those scenarios where he was like, if you ever need a help or anything yeah. like that, shoot me an email and, you know, the relationship never came to fruition. Yeah, but it's... But it was the fact that he was happy to give me his time totally. and his expertise, even just for a couple of hours. And the boldness and to an extent, dumb naivety yeah. um, that... But I it's think- also because 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you're not trying to get there so you can take a selfie in Philip Noyce's house. You're getting there because you're like, I have a work ethic and I'm trying to work and work in this field. Yeah. You're somebody that's working in this field whose work I love and appreciate. And I'm mm. not even trying to get, I don't want you to open doors for me. I actually just want to talk to you about your, your work, about what you've done, how you've done it. And yeah, get, I don't know, get perspective, get advice, get support, just moral support. Mm. Like that's, to me, that needs to happen more often. Yeah, I agree. You know, and I just, I always think about it like I'm so the bottom of the barrel if we're talking about like, you know, importance as an artist, you know, and yet I think if there was like a young singer, songwriter or musician in Melbourne that wanted or anywhere that wanted to kind of reach out and ask me questions about stuff, I... Yes, I'd love to talk to them. You would make time because it's just like we all got here not mm. by our own means, you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'm so big on that stuff. And I just think I think it's a healthy it's again, it's a community like it's we are a community of like filmmakers or musicians. We're all doing these are my peers now. Like at what point and I say this to friends who kind of get intimidated by other musicians and other bands. It's like at what point does the hierarchy change like if you're obviously you have to be kind of good like you can't just be like a terrible singing busker you know and give mariah carey a call but at the same time like let's say you're working as a musician and you're doing good work and you're doing good gigs and people are enjoying what you're doing and are in, you know an audience is investing in your work you in return are making good work at what point do you get the right to talk to any one of your heroes to chris martin to tom york to you know whoever like I don't know. I just feel like the distance might not be as big as we feel like it is in our minds. Like these are our work colleagues, you know, mm. where, yeah, I'm all about that stuff. I'm all, and I just, it's not even about boldness or courage. It's just it's work. It's community. It's people. It's family. It's building relationships with people and just, yeah, I don't know. I'm into that. Mm. No, I feel you. Um, and I love that you did that. That's awesome. Thank Did you, you meet anyone else? Yeah. Come on, drop more names. Drop more names. <laughs> drop I'll, drop I'll, those names. I'll tell you a little uh, thing in a similar vein that's not... You won't know who it is, but it was the same sort of feeling. I didn't really know yeah. who he was either. And I never met him, but um, I remember sending the shotgun script, like the feature film version of it, and yeah. the uh, first 15 minutes, I got the email address of the guy who edited snatch and Lockstock, yeah um and had done slumdog millionaire all these awesome english amazing guy? films yeah Must an english be, yeah, guy yeah, yeah. and i sent it to him and he and he wrote back to me and he gave me all this feedback on it Sick. and i was like that's fucking awesome yeah, i think that was awesome. one of the first times where i went wow I just you just reach out yeah you just put it out into the world and the worst case scenario is you're in the same situation <laughs> that you were when you <laughs> that's started right that's right but it just those little things also give you a little like it's validation i guess which it's sad that we need, but you can't, it's the rites of passage thing. It's sort of, there's something powerful about somebody doing or living in the world that you want to, I guess, get into mm. and having them sort of, even if it's just like shaking your hand and going, keep going, you know? And I just feel like the way that we talk about celebrities and the, or just the way that we perceive Hollywood or anything in the entertainment industry from the outside, there's this unhealthy perception mm. that it's people are somehow untouchable or have no time. I mean, mate, actors, especially 
very successful ones, they have nothing but time, you know, mm. and like... Can't go down to the shops. <laughs> exactly. They have, they have people that do that for them. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, I'm really interested in that. And especially in this country where it is so difficult to make art, even if you're, whether you're independent or if you're part of like the TV network system or the whatever, you know, there's no studio system here. But if there was, certainly in music as well, we're all in this together. We are all trying so hard to kind of put on good work. And because of that, there's this great togetherness that mm. we sort of have, mm. you know, and I, yeah, I feel like, I don't know, these sort of stories, I feel like they're important to share. I actually think that it's because it's not about name dropping. You have to get past that hesitation to go, well, I don't want to talk about all the, but at the same time, like I had this idea that I wanted to email this person whose work I loved. I did it. They replied and now I feel more confident to keep making my work and I don't feel like I'm in complete isolation, you know? Mm. That's an important story to tell. And For sure. Yeah, I'm into that. Yeah, and you took that almost a step further with Sarah um, <laughs> by writing a song and posting yes. a video. Well, that was a little bit of a shrewd... I guess I was. that was partly like, okay, what's the most creative way to achieve what I'm trying to achieve? And it worked, and that mm. was lucky. Yes. <laughs> Do you want me, are we going to keep talking about that? Or? Yeah, no, I was curious about what, what, your, what you think the power of social media and um, this kind of viral marketing is. I don't know. Well, it I just, worked for you. I know. I know it did. and I, But I don't know because I don't know that I would have the confidence to ever do anything like... Well, not confidence is the wrong word. I don't know that I would ever do anything like that again. Um, you did it once though. I, well, yeah, that's right. You know what? I did it. It wasn't like a, oh, this will be a great mark. In fact, in fact, I actually, in the immediate sort of following of that video going up and Sarah responding and me going to sing it, Rod Laver with her. Um, a little people Bruce can, Springsteen, did Yeah, you? a bit of Bruce Springsteen. People can look this story up online, I guess, if they want. Um, but basically, there were a few emails that I got from people going, do you want me to kind of get this person who's in publicity or whatever onto it? And I just remember saying no to all of those things. Which now, looking back, I'm like, why Why not just say yes? Like, is it, you know, it's good publicity. But at the time, I was like, I don't want to pollute what is such a, it was kind of naively more precious to me that it was like, no, I just, this is a creative mind doing work from a similar place to me. And I that's what this is about. This is not about, the bonus was like singing on stage in that space. But really, I was just like, this. I just wanted to sit down and chat and talk about music and mm. find out, you know, what she was doing and... Yeah, but so I, it certainly wasn't like a, this is a great marketing tool. Um, no, but I guess I'm not saying as a marketing tool, but more the power of yeah. these uh, Well, definitely tools. the access that we have to, um, I don't know, to these people that are working, is that's powerful on social media. And I don't know, if, I, I feel like some of that's gently starting to mutate a little now. I feel like social media is not i mean i'm already seeing it with a lot of the comedians i follow on twitter who with within the last six months have become a lot more quiet and hands off i don't know why that is a lot of them though were like guys i'm kind of laying off the social media now because i feel like we've almost gone through this bubble of like intense super connectedness and then people have almost reacted to that it's like the uncanny valley of social media mm. where they've gone oh this is too weird and now i need to step away and do I, or maybe it's too negative. There's just too much opportunity for people to hate each other mm. and express the worst of themselves, you know. But um, certainly with the, Sarah, with the Sarah story for me, 
it showed the power of getting a community behind what you're trying to do. So basically I put the video up, said to my small group of following, you know, help me get Sarah to see this. And then she obviously got quite a few <laughs> tweets because she watched it within 24 hours or something. Wow. Yeah. It's impressive. And it was cool. It was pretty cool that it happened. And yeah. I do, I keep it all up there. Like, and I do like talking about it partly because I like that narrative of like, go, it's not about like go reach for your dreams or anything like that. It's just like, just work hard and do good work, you know, do your best to do good work and then reach out to people. And sometimes that works. I think it is about reaching for your dreams, but it's first of all, knowing what your dreams are because yeah. your dream wasn't to sing on stage. That's with a, right. With a That's celebrity. why I get hesitant to sort of talk about like, believe in yourself and your dreams will come true. Cause I would hate to simplify what that act was to just, I want to sing on stage in front of thousands of people. Like as, validating and fun as that experience is of course that wasn't the end game i would have mm. been so happy if all we'd done was sit down for a coffee and just talk about music and about life and you know um so yeah but you're right like it's if you know but i knew that's what i wanted and obviously that's sort of it worked in that way mm. i think the people who are listening to this podcast are probably of the um not of the ilk of wanting fame and fortune <laughs> uh, oh i still want fortune i'm just kidding no, that's right. I do. <laughs> I got to buy this uh, pantsless studio at yes. some point. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fair enough. I mean, what was it like stepping out into Rod Laver Arena? And- oh, it was awesome. It was awesome, and because I knew that it was going to be so ridiculous, like it was, it was, it was the Maroon Five show, but she was opening for them, and then she asked me to sing with her in her set. So there were like thousands of people there. In the days leading up to it, I'd made a real decision to be present for it. Because what often happens is, you know, you would know, because I know you've done a little bit of performing, sometimes you get so anxious about the performance that you get to the end of it and you go, ah, that just happened and I wasn't aware of anything. I have no idea what the crowd looked like, you know. Um, Interestingly, that's what happened with my Athenaeum show. I actually don't remember anything about it because I was pretty stressed for the whole thing. Mm. We don't talk about that now. But the Sarah thing, I made a decision that I was going to be present. So even when you watch the video... I take a moment as I walk out to really enjoy it. Cause I was like, I might never be back here. Like my music is good. It's not like Phil Rod Laver arena kind of music. So I was like, this, this is a fun experience that mm. might be a once in a lifetime thing. So I'm going to slow down and really appreciate the fact that it's happening. And yeah, it was fun. It was like, yeah, it was fun. Why did you choose or why did you collectively choose I'm on fire? I didn't choose it. She chose it. I really wanted to sing. I had a few other songs as, as ideas, but uh, it was just ease of the fact that we didn't have time to practice. She'd done that song as a duet with another guy before. So she just linked me the video and said, how does this sound? And I was like, that's easy. Let's do that. Mm. Yeah. It's a beautiful uh, cover. Oh, thank you. Mm. Yeah. It's not like my favorite song, but we. it's a beautiful cover. So I'm happy to. Mm. Yeah. Are you a fan of the boss? <laughs> the boss yeah exactly mm-hmm. i don't know if he's seen it probably not probably no. probably has yeah yeah of course he has i think he probably loves it he's yeah. probably sent it to i all emailed his, him i got his he sent it to all of his family his actually this is funny this is, this is total name dropping right now but it's more just the funny the fact because you know everybody we're all the same um but i went and saw so sarah and i've stayed friends and i went um and saw her play at this concert with all these other artists in la when i was there recently and um katie perry was hosting this night with all these different artists and so anyway sarah i got to go along and sit um and watch that show and obviously i suppose whoever she'd invited we were all sitting in the same row and so we're sitting down and the the lady next to me just sort of turned to me and goes 
is your name Ben? She was American, but yeah. um, and I was like, yes. And she was like, you sang with Sarah. Anyway, she was Sarah's auntie. <laughs> and of course, like you don't think about this stuff, but of course, like I guess that story was so weird and kind of quirky that her family and stuff had all mm. watched it. And it was just that funny collision of like, Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, that was awesome. That's what I meant. Community. Sarah Bareilles' auntie and her niece. Yeah, mm. community. Exactly. It's just family. It's which is what it is. Like it's those things are so good because you see behind the curtain a bit and you just go, oh my gosh, yes. Like there she is at the Hollywood Bowl up the very front. But at the same time, we're all just you know working hard, trying to make art mm. with families and things that come and watch our shows and share our videos. Yeah. Mm. Um, and you also you uh, supported Sarah when she toured here. Yeah, and you supported Emmylou Harris as yes, well. Yes, my she best friend Emmylou Harris. Best friend. <laughs> See, I, I mean, she doesn't know you. that. She doesn't know that, but totally. I oh, know that. That yeah, those two. They're actually the only like proper tours I've done, but they were phenomenal. They were awesome. Mm. Like, and you know, so above my pay grade for what I should be doing at this stage of the career. Well, you're very modest, it. but you know, you have been doing this for like 10 years now yeah that's true i mean you've i guess really it's been doing just it you know life. what it is it's because i don't have the infrastructure to warrant those tours mm. but they just came about for whatever reason and that um you know i was very lucky in those cases because mm. yeah like i didn't have a booking agent i which i have now but at the time yeah there were definitely just these things of like wow how how am i here this is awesome mm. i'm also terrified because i feel like i shouldn't be here <laughs> and how so. do you get over that uh, how do I get over that? As in, the how terror. do I, the terror? Well, you know, I sort of moved between like that total neurotic, I'm not worth anything and being here. And then I sort of move into a headspace of, I think I might be the most amazing person ever. You know, <laughs> and I, don't, I don't really have control over those things, but you just have those moments of like, I think I might be really good. Uh, <laughs> so hold on to that I just move between those two things mm. um, you know I don't know I just you, just you just do it you work hard and it is that thing of the more you do it as long as you kind of know what you're doing and after eight years you do eventually tick over and go okay I know what to do if I have a guitar in my hands and I'm in front of people then you just do it and you just gotta hope that it works mm. listening to an interesting uh, podcast uh, Alec Baldwin's uh, Here's the Thing mm. which is another podcast that I've been listening to in a similar format to this, he was doing yeah. it with um, uh, Penn Gillette yeah. of Penn and Teller. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, Penn was saying these uh, magicians or um, circus performers from you know bygone era who would take five to ten years to learn how to juggle properly mm. or learn how to um, light a cigarette. Mm-hmm. that was already in their mouth with their fingers and their yeah, tongue yeah, or something yeah. like that. Of course, you're going to be doing that for the rest of your career. Of course, you're going yeah. to be, you know, that's going to be your closing number. Um, but that there's also something to an evolution of an act and that whilst you may do the same show as you did last night, you're not going to do the same show that you did last year. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, and I think that it's that it's that's the thing about performance that you sort of you build up these skills that are kind of like tools in your toolbox but there's still always the exchange between you and an audience and that's the part of the fun part i think Mm. just 
Well, it is fun for me so far. I haven't had the experience of playing the same set of songs 300 times in two years, which some people also have. So I don't know. Let's... I'm talking about it with total fresh eyes. Like, yeah, there's the energy of every room, you know. Mm. That's how I receive it at the moment. Mm. Mm. And you went back to social media to crowdfund your yes. album. Yeah. That was, yeah. It was funny. Like, so I knew that I wanted to make the record and I had I had pretty big sort of plans for it. I wanted to do it well. I'm, Philosophically, I wanted to make sure everyone got paid properly. I didn't want mates rates for anyone. Um, partly because I believe in integrity. Well, definitely I believe in integrity. <laughs> but also there was there was actually a little bit of a business thing in that as well, in that I I've obviously intend for this with the amount I've invested in, I obviously intend for this to do very well. And so I didn't want to get to the other end with a really successful with the possibility of a really successful product and all these people like did stuff for free and I'm like, hey, hey, I've got a pool on my roof and like, you guys suck. And you know, like I just wanted to make sure that everyone was treated right, everyone got paid right so that I owned this thing at the other end, you know, in case whatever I needed to do with it could be done. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the crowdfunding was interesting because I my ambition for the project was huge. I wanted to get the best studio, wanted to play with the best players, had zero money. Like I've, you know, I've never had money. We're creators in Australia. I, I live in a house that my parents own. Um, so, but I was like, I want to do all this stuff. And so, yeah, I kind of just hoped for the best and put it up on Possible, which is sort of the Aussie version of Kickstarter. And it was great. The response was amazing. People, what amazed me was not how many people gave, but actually bizarrely, not that many people gave, but what they gave was significant. Mm. And that was a real surprising thing to me. Cause I was like, I always think like this. I was like, okay, I've got like 3000 Facebook fans, 1500 of them are from Melbourne surely like if they all gave me five bucks you know this is great uh interestingly i only had something like 250 give and made seventeen thousand dollars which was i mean i didn't make all that like obviously there's cuts that go out to different things but yeah on the final figure on the site is like seventeen thousand so it was awesome Mm. but then terrifying because the other end of that i'll never do it again because the other side of that was just the stress of having to then mm. give everyone you don't think about that part or i didn't um you know you don't think about oh yeah i have to kind of give all these rewards and stuff most of which was just a cd but there were a few that were stressful especially because of the album got so big and time went on and mm. people started going hey what's happened like where's all the money that we gave you and i was like <laughs> oh no it's happening it's just everything costs so much more than we thought and like seventeen thousand dollars sounds like a lot of money but Studio time cost 14900 for two weeks. And that was it. Like that was most of my budget gone. Mm. And I still had to pay the band and had to, you know. Did you it, at least get an audio engineer that wore pants? I did get an audio engineer that wore pants. Unlike today. Mm. But uh, can't have everything on the podcast. That's true. Budget cuts. Fortunately, yeah, budget cuts. Fortunately, this is not a visual medium. This is. <laughs> or unfortunately, depending on... Yeah. What people are looking for. I mean, Nick does have his own sort of fan base. Now. He does. <laughs> Pantsoffnick.com. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was interesting because the, basically the project ended up costing so much more than like just, just crazy amounts more than I thought. And that was the naivety of not knowing how to budget. <laughs> but also my ambitions were big and I wanted to get it right. You know, I didn't want to settle for, I didn't want to have that experience of putting out an album 
and then in five years time going gee i wish that we'd made that sound better so yeah it was an interesting process and that relationship with the audience was interesting to go through once i then started producing the album you have to disappear from the public from the public listen to me like i had to disappear from public life <laughs> but like you know up until that point i'd been so like hey everyone come to this gig here and or here's a thing or you're tweeting all the time interacting all the time as soon as i started making the work i disappeared into the world of i'm trying to get this stuff right and didn't really talk much on social media didn't play that many gigs because you go to book a gig and you're like which version of the song do i play like we've now got drums and 50 guitars in this song i feel weird playing it just on guitar oh, i'm not going to play a gig at all you know <laughs> uh, and but that would happen and then all yeah. of a sudden the audience are going so a year ago we gave you like all this money and you said that you'd have stuff and then you feel bad and then you're like why did i get into this and then you're like send an email to sarah Barella saying i quit everything and you know anyway it was an interesting process i'm glad to at the moment know that for the next little while i won't have to go through that again mm. I want to trust my audience in that way again. That's great. But just the terror of having all these different stakeholders in my music was a little hard. Mm. But you made an album. But I made an album. And you released an album. Correct. And I, and I did. And you played a gig at the Athenaeum. I that was freaking played a gig, gig at the Athenaeum. Yeah. And it, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it worked and it was a real fight, but it was worth it because I think... I've learned that because of the way that I fell into music, it's taken all of those things to help me. That's That's been my coming of age story. That's my initiation. You know what I mean? Like that's the, you know. Stepping into your man. Totally. Exactly. Like I, I started this career as a boy with a ukulele and, you know, largely if people have listened to me long enough. But then this idea that I've suddenly graduated to this whole other world of music that I now feel like I have the right to be part of. And that's a pretty awesome feeling, mm. you know, more than I would ever have gotten from a college, a university degree, I think. Mm. Just knowing the way I learn things and stuff, <laughs> you know. And I think you've developed a fan base and a community and a following of people that are prepared to come with you on that journey. Yeah. And really I, trust in your artistry. I hope so. Like... I love that idea of bringing people into the process a bit because I I do re reject some of the untouchable nature of the entertainment world. You know, like, I don't know, just, yeah, that notion of like, I'm really important because I'm up on stage or I'm, you know, in, in front of you or whatever and don't talk to me or whatever. I'm like, no, 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 let's, like, thank you for supporting me. Let's go through this together. So I've always tried. And look, I don't know, maybe some people find this too much, but I've always tried whenever big things happen for me, I try to bring people in like, whoa, guys, this great thing. I just got played on this radio station or, you know, I've been asked to play at this gig or whatever. I try to bring people into that mm. because, yeah, it's like, I don't know. It's about, it sounds so dumb because I'm like, it's about us, but it's still about me. Like at the end of the day, I get that pool on my roof of my house. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. It just... It's what I value in, in the music. And if anything, it's kind of, I need it. I feel like I want people there with me. I don't want to totally lose myself and lose everything that I've, mm. everything that I've identified myself with all of a sudden, like, you know, in 10 years time to not know any of the names of people that used to support me at my shows now. Like that, I feel like that's, 
and that could happen, but I don't want that to happen. I want to keep bringing these people in because it's just like, that's what I got into this for is about the community of music. Mm. You know, I don't want to suddenly make all these new, like rich and powerful friends. And then be like, screw you guys, you know? Um, so maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's part of trying to put in safeguards to stop that. Mm. Or it's just the fun of bringing people along for the ride. People don't often see behind the curtain a bit with that stuff. Mm. And you can do that with music. I feel like in film, there's again this sort of uncanny valley idea that I feel like if you were making a film and if you brought us in too much to the process of that, there should be a distance between we've wrapped filming or shooting and now we're editing and getting... You don't want to sort of release things or tell us too much about the back end because we want this moment where you reveal the finished product mm. i feel like that needs to happen in the world well, there needs to be a suspension of disbelief yeah that's that right and if, if i get if i get I mean, to the point of seeing your film on a screen but i'm like well i was kind of there through the whole process and i've yeah. seen too much of the behind the scenes in the build-up yeah it would almost have a negative effect because it would make me not value this kind of finished product whereas i feel like in film you want i want to see you disappear mm for years you know and sort of emerge <laughs> with a beard looking super disheveled and like tortured and with a few more kind of bruises and scars mm. but then this like finished product that we can all kind of yeah i don't know i feel like maybe that's a point of difference for our yeah for sure views. i don't usually like showing people things even very close friends and family like it's literally like i keep it within the people that are working mm. on it and that's pretty much it yeah um because it's not i know what the final product looks like yeah. in my head or have a vague idea yeah. and if i'm showing you you particularly if you're not educated in the way that these things are constructed yeah. there are just elements that you're not going to understand yeah um and it would be a disservice to well you just the seeing, show. and also it's the you know narrative is all in many ways and film is about timing and if you see mm. any part of a narrative out of context and it's ungraded or whatever yeah you just you just that's there's no surprise when that is happening for in real time Mm. Mm. so do you think this idea of i guess kind of a oneness a connectedness a community is that what life is all about for you is that what is that the meaning of Um, all of this i mean i i don't know i don't i don't know if i have the right to say what I would say is the, the meaning of everything, but um, I definitely think it's important to, f- I think that the concept of community and connecting with other human beings is, it's it's just so much a part of who we are and why we're here. I definitely think that. I mean, obviously, I guess as a religious, as a spiritual person, um, obviously as a spiritual person I believe that there are you know other sort of things to the reason of our existence but certainly when it comes to our fellow man and this idea I don't know it's yeah it's half of everything for me and so it is about community and about other people and it's um, I don't know I feel like that's something I'm still trying to learn but I'm really trying to fight for it I'm trying to find the community and everything I don't want to create in isolation I don't want to Maybe I want my voice to stand aside as a point of difference, but that's not in isolation. And it's not, I don't want to create from a place of complete isolation um, because it's not what I value. And I feel like I'd get concerned if I, you know. Yeah, as you can see, I'm still figuring that stuff out. Still figuring it out. Yeah, but I definitely, 
I think the world needs more interconnectedness. You know, I think that we live in an age where it's too easy to be totally alone. And, you know, even, even more and more music gets made from people's bedrooms and stuff, which is awesome. And some of the stuff that gets made is absolutely artistically incredible. Mm. But there's still, you don't just want to do all of that and then lose the, the part where there's a profound ability we have to connect with other human beings, even other cultures through music, you know, not through language, not through, you know, anything else, just through music, through sound, through the arrangement of tones and yeah. Mm. Yes. That's beautiful. <laughs> I like to, uh, I like to round out the show by yeah. asking what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Oh. What makes what is it about you that's silly or what is something that makes you go silly? The phrasing of the question is completely yeah. no, grammatically it's fine. incorrect. Hey, you know, just what makes me silly? Uh, I don't know. Tiredness. If I'm tired enough, I feel like I just get more and more absurd because I have this part of my brain that loves to be like, unfiltered and if i'm tired then i just go there so for example in my job obviously we work with kids in hospital that's a pretty you know and in an environment where you imagine there'd be a lot of parameters within which and there are Mm. and i don't certainly break those rules but at the same time if i'm tired enough you know i'm not against making threats to little girls about cutting off their pigtails if they ask to change (laughs) you know mario kart one more time or things like that I just feel like that's I get silly and stupid when I'm tired. Mm. That is a terrible answer, that question. And then you use Bowser when you play Mario Kart. Uh actually it depends on what environment. We are getting we are getting into an area of expertise for me, so oh, I don't, don't want to get too over the top. But Rainbow Road. Uh Rainbow Road is good with Mar depending on what console and what game, but if it's a Wii U Mario Kart, Rainbow Road, if it's the second Rainbow Road then you want to use Mario on the sport bike with slick wheels. Right. That's the best way to drive. I will bear that in yeah, mind. Yeah, <laughs> you can take that with you. I am. Yeah. That is welcome. my takeaway. You're welcome, Australia. Yeah, the world. The world. Sorry. This podcast. goes out to the you're world. You're welcome, universe. Let's not confine ourselves. The world is a stage. <laughs> is that, was that Ian McKellen? Was that Ian McKellen? Are its players. Yeah, okay. The, the world no I'm not even going to try I feel like it's got to be shakier though and whisperier the world is a stage that's good I was getting and I'm getting shivers all the men and women <laughs> are its players yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for coming and uh, thanks for chatting with me Ben thanks for letting and me and I would in. love it if you uh, if you want to uh, bust out a little ditty if you feel like you've uh, you've got it in you otherwise we can just cut I can try and... something I can try something Cool. I don't know how my voice is going to hold up. That's all right. If it's terrible, I'll, it's all... I'll just put on YouTube. <laughs> I'll just go, wait a minute. What? What is this guy? Yeah, I'll, I'll try something. Cool. Thanks, so, man. No worries. You can find Ben Abraham over on the Facebook at facebook.com slash Ben Abraham Music and on Instagram under Ben Folds Napkins. Thank you, Ben, for being a part of the Coming Up Next Evolution. And thank you, friends, for tuning in and listening to Two Guys Ramble for 90 Minutes. Before we get to Ben's acoustic number, you can find more Coming Up Next content on the social media. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast and over on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. 
And don't forget, friends, you can join the Coming Up Next work and get a monthly dose of warm fuzzies over at patreon.com slash marksbros. And coming up next, we have another first. Not long ago, I attended a weekend seminar that changed the course of my life. The weekend was called The Courage to Be You, and it was, as the title suggests, all about becoming your own hero, your own greatest champion. I thought that was pretty fitting for uh, for this podcast and, and the, the adventure that we've all been going on together. So I was fortunate enough to get the man behind the seminar, which was a free seminar, by the way, to come into the Ramble Room with me for an hour and speak on the courage to be you. Coming up next, friends, Joe Parnay. And now to play us out, an acoustic number from Ben Abraham. This is what getting older feels like Sleep now Think about what you've been through And just look at who you've turned into All the wrong that you've had You've seen the best of the good and the bad Rest your heart and your feet It's just a moment you need When all the lights are starting to
started to fade And when you lose sight of the plans that you made And when all the mountains stand in your way Keep you from dreaming And when you can't see the path up ahead when the voice in your heart is at war with your head And when it takes courage to get out of bed When you feel like retreating Lean into me Lean into me Lean to me.